Hi, welcome back to Paperback Readers. I'm Joe, that's Julie, and another two weeks have gone by, which means it's another uh, time to talk about what we've been reading. And it's still been spring break for me, so I've had tons and tons of time to read. Um, and you've gotten quite a few things done too, right? Uh, a fair amount. I, I've read a lot of longer books lately, honestly, and it's kind of slowed me down. But uh, Those long books, though, they're worth it. Well, everything I've read has been good. It's definitely been one of those times where uh wasn't a clunker in the group. All right, you go first. Tell us about your books. Okay. Well, I read a book called There Was a Light. I'm trying to get the subtitle, The Cosmic History of Chris Bell and the Rise of Big Star by Rich Tupica. Um, pretty recent book came out in 2020. Chris Bell, if you've never heard of him, you're not alone, was one of the two most influential members of the band Big Star. And if you've never heard of them, you're not alone. <laughs> Big Star is one of those bands that should have been. Uh, it was a, I don't know, something between the Beatles and Soul. I mean, they, these were white dudes from Memphis um, come out in the early 70s. Their most famous members, Alex Chilton, uh, who had been in the box tops, most famous for singing The Letter. You know, the, get me a ticket <laughs> for an aeroplane. Bad imitation free. Um, Chris Bell is kind of the sensitive tunesmith of Big Star. He's kind of the McCartney to Chilton's Lennon, if you will. Uh, and Big Star made this great record that was released, which was promoted horribly, which sold about eight copies. But everybody who heard it loved it, particularly critics. Big Star was the kind of band that critics loved because their music was great, but it never sold anything. Hmm. After one record, literally in the middle of working on the second one, uh, Chris Bell leaves Big Star. The Big Star makes well, three or four records, depending on who's counting. Uh, and Bell tries some solo stuff. He writes one of the best songs you've never heard, a song called I Am The Cosmos, which is just heartbreaking and beautiful and perfect. And if you want three minutes of Chris Bell to be like, this is something I would care about, check out the song I Am the Cosmos by Chris Bell. Um, anyway, this book goes through Big Star and particularly Bell uh, with a fine-tooth comb. It's written largely as an oral history. A lot of the other guys in the band, I mean, they used the few interviews that were out there from Bell, who, spoiler alert, passed away in the late 70s. You and, do like an oral history. And they had some from Chilton, who passed away 90s, 2000s, sometime around in there. Um, but, you know, it uh, taught me a lot. And, and this was a band, there's a great movie about them. I want to say it's called Nothing Can Hurt Me Now. It's something like that. Uh, but if any of this resonates with you, all of it will resonate with you, because this was a really thorough, well-written book about a band that doesn't get enough credit and enough attention and particularly Chris Bell, a guy who, again, he's, he's been gone 40 odd years now, uh, but wrote some really amazing songs. Uh, the song that was the theme song for that 70s show is probably the most famous big star song. So there's my other claim to fame of big star. But, uh, anyway, that was one I read that was very good. Read one called Dreams to Remember, Otis Redding, Stax Records, and the Transformation of Southern Soul by Mark Rabowski. Um, I read Rabowski's Hank Williams biography. I probably liked it better. 
I definitely learned a lot about Otis Redding, but this one just felt kind of jumbled. I mean, Otis Redding's rise and sudden passing are so fast. It just, it's like everything just happens in a couple of years. It all goes down at breakneck speed. Um, interesting to hear some about the machinations of, of uh, Stax Records in Memphis and why that ultimately fell apart, um, which... I guess kind of makes this a cousin to Big Star, even though Otis Redding and, and Big Star wouldn't uh, be too much together. They both came out of uh, Memphis recording. So, hmm. uh, good book. But again, I liked Robowski's Hank Williams' book. He's done some others that I want to check out, good music biographers. So. There's just probably more info about Hank Williams. Yeah, yeah. Well, there is. There is. Um on a very different note, read John Feinstein's Race of Fist, Take a Knee, Race in the Illusion of Progress in Modern Sports. Um, read a lot of Feinstein's books over the years. Great basketball writer. Did some baseball books. He's done some golf books, although I've never read any of those. You've read enough of his books that I've recommended them to other people, despite having never read one of his books. Well, the book that made him famous was called A Season on the Brink, and he wrote it in the 80s. He spent a season with Indiana basketball when Bobby Knight was the coach, and he pulled no punches. I mean, Knight was delivered in vivid four-letter uh, infamy in the pages of that book, and it made him a bunch of money and made him a bunch of fame. Uh, but Raise a Fist, Take a Knee as the title and subtitle suggested, is his work on the place of African-Americans in sports today, uh, be it players, be it coaches, be it ownership. Uh, he got some truly fascinating interviews. Uh, like John Thompson, the longtime Georgetown basketball coach, is on the cover. He got some great uh, stories from and about Thompson. Uh, the... Uh, I'm blanking on the names. The two Olympians from Mexico City in 1968 who are famous for raising a fist in a black power salute. And I can't believe I'm forgetting their names, but I'm forgetting their names. Those guys are in here. They got a chapter, and I never knew a ton about their story, but that was fascinating. Colin Kaepernick, of course, Jackie Robinson and Arthur Ashe are the other figures on the cover, and that kind of gives you an idea of the sort of thing he was looking at. Um, an, an important book, I, I actually tweeted uh, John, who I know faintly on Twitter, and just said, I can't say it was your book that I've enjoyed the most, but it might be your most important. And you know, he said, I've gotten really good reviews, and I appreciate that. So if you're interested in race and sports, it's both good as a history and as kind of a, this is what's been done to improve the way things are, and this is where things still need some work. Um, this is the next step to go forward. Um, an interesting book, and like I say, probably an important one. It does sound like a really very interesting book. Well, that was the three, apart from the shared read, which is one you've read before, and we'll, we'll hold get there. off on that for a minute. Yeah. Okay, the first one I read was The Unsinkable Greta James by Jennifer E. Smith. It was a book of the month pick for last month, I guess, and I loved it so much. Um it is the story of Greta James, who is a musician. Her mother has just passed away, and she, I feel like I talked about this some last time, maybe even. She goes on the um, Alaskan cruise for their anniversary that her parents had planned to go on. Awkward again, because her mother should have been there instead of her, but also because her father has never supported her music career, and she and he have a really tangled, fraught relationship, and now they're going to be on this cruise together. 
Um, so it's a really, really cool book about music, about family, about um, how we show our love for each other. I liked it all the way through. There's a lot of music and art in our uh, reading picks these there days. There really is, yeah. Um, then I read The Roughest Draft by Emily Wibberley and Austin Siegmund. Not really sure about that. Siegmund Broca. Um, they are a husband and wife co-writing team, and they write fiction together. And this book was about a man and a woman who are a co-writing team who have, um, they've written a, two books together, one of them, which was hugely successful, but something happened at the end of writing that book that caused them to dissolve their working relationship. They didn't do any of the publicity events together, and they have not spoken to each other since then, but they are in contract for another book, um... He has written a book that did not do well without her, and her current fiancé really needs some money. So the two of them decide to try to put aside their differences and work together on finishing this book. And, of course, you know, it's a really great rom-com. I enjoyed it thoroughly. And then I read Lease on Love, which was another rom-com that was just one of the smartest, um, sharpest books that I'd read in a long time in this genre. The dialogue was really spot on. The characters were really well drawn. Their flaws were done really well. In this book, um, a young woman, the main character, sorry, loses her job in finance in New York City unexpectedly. She was expecting a promotion. Instead, she loses her job. She um, goes out with her friends and attempts to set up a date um, through a matchmaking, like a, a dating app. And instead she doesn't realize she has opened a roommate's app instead, uh. which leads her to a guy in Brooklyn who is looking for a roommate and they move in together and then everything ensues from. There. So, um, it was really funny. It was really poignant. I, this is one of my favorite, um, rom-coms that I've read in a really long time. Um, both of these books have steamy scenes, so if that's not your thing, beware. But the they're both <laughs> worthwhile if you like that genre. Then I read a book called Max and the Midnights by Lincoln Pierce, which is a graphic novel that um, our daughter Natalie recommended to me. She has thought that whole series was incredibly funny, and she's totally right. It is. Max is actually, to give away just a little bit, a girl, which you don't find out until the end of the first chapter, who wants to be a knight in this country. Her uncle, who is her caretaker, is a troubadour. Um, but the home country to which they are returning is totally different from when he left it. And there are a number of problems to solve that she and her friends have to use their own talents and abilities and just intrinsic humor to try to solve. It was a really, really fast read, and it was really funny. I feel like our daughter has better literary taste than I do. It would be a better <laughs> podcast if you and her. She's really good at finding the ones funny things. Like she, she and our, yeah, she... she and Ryan both really they need the humor. Oh yeah. Um, in fact, our son Ryan likes to do his reading homework on the way home in the car so that he can like have all of his time at home free. So he's supposed to read 20 minutes every day, and on one of the last days before spring break, he didn't have a book with him, and he did not want to take her recommendations. He didn't want to read this book, but this is what she had with her, and so he grudgingly agreed to read it so he could get his homework done, and she and I both just sat and listened to him giggle all the way home <laughs> against his will, because it's just a truly hilarious book. Then I read a book called A Homemade Life by Molly Weisenberg, which is one of two nonfiction books that I read. I've just been eating up fiction lately. It's just a lot of fun. Um, but this one is a food memoir. 
Um, it is one of the typical classic kinds of food memoirs that um, it has a short essay and then it ends with a recipe for food that was talked about in that essay. They're all really short. There are a ton of them. So I really, I like more talk about food. I'm not even, I'm not going to make most of these recipes. I just want to hear what you have to say about food. Um, but I, I did enjoy the book. I liked her voice and I liked the way she wove food with her life and made it actually about her life in food. I like the Jane and Michael Stern book that I think we talked about early in the podcast. Yeah, that's it's, not a food memoir though. Well, that's a where to go. No, no, no. You're thinking about the road food book. I'm thinking about the book that the two of them wrote about how they got started going around and eating all this okay. food. It was a lot of fun. It yeah. was fun. I know what you're talking about. And they about did them. the same stuff. I can't remember the name of it. It had a green cover. I can remember yeah. that. All right. The last one that I read is The 90s by Chuck Klosterman. Is that how you say his name? Yeah, Klosterman. Okay. Um, you talked about this one last time, right? I don't have a ton to add with what you had to say at this point because we will discuss it more later on. But I do want to say that this book was much more interesting than I expected it to be. It was one of the ones that you said, <laughs> give it a chapter and see. And like four chapters later, I could barely put it down. So definitely my cup of tea. And yeah. we will discuss it more later. You did tear through that one, yeah. Yeah, you know. And now on to our shared book, which is Booth by Karen Joy Fowler. Yeah, real good read. Um, you know, one of those books where it's a uh, testimony to a well-written historical novel when you can use, you know, the artist's tools so delicately and carefully that it felt like a biography. I'm not unfamiliar with Booth and his history. But in case you are, let's just start with a summary. What is the premise behind this book, in case you weren't here last week when I was talking about it? Yeah, well, I mean, it is... She wanted to write about Booth without writing about Booth in so many words. Um, so she wrote about his family. She wrote about <coughs> their story, which is... And when you say Booth, you're talking about John Wilkes Booth. Right. Who assassinated Lincoln. So this is set before the Civil War and then ends just after the war has ended. Correct. It's a, it covers a fairly limited number of years um, and is really thoroughly researched historical fiction. Right. The, the Booth family were a family of actors. Um, and before John Wilkes uh, started firing bullets into people's heads, that's what they were known for. All of the men in the family, their father right. and then the oldest brother, Junius, Edwin, John himself, no, all of the men in the no. family were acknowledged actors. Yeah, and, you know, in a time when the stage was the only mode, of course, of acting, we're well ahead of, you know, video and television and certainly movies. Um, you know, the, these guys were big stars in their time, in their world. Known for Shakespearean acting. And known for being... Big weirdos. <laughs> yes. Which really does come through. Um, but I think that that's part of celebrity culture, even then. Yeah, yeah, arguably. Uh, you know, everything about them is news. And, and the three Booth brothers really are kind of at the center of the whole story. And you couldn't write three more different people, which, again, seems to be consistent with the historical record. They, they didn't have much in common except for the fact that they were booths and they were actors and they were pretty good actors um, forged uh, from a million stands in one horse towns pretty much. And this book is structured with 
sections told from the point of view of each of the siblings. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's ever a chapter with either of the parents being no. the point of view characters. This is all about the siblings. So what Karen Joy Fowler did with this, obviously tons of information out there about the men, the Booth men, um, because they were famous actors, but the women also left behind, almost all of them, quite a paper trail of their own. Um, Asia, for sure, who was the second daughter. Second daughter? Yes. And well, then, and then they had well, children who died. Who, yeah. The second who lived, in essence. Right. Um, Rosalie was the one that, in the author's note, she said that that character was more fictionalized because Rosalie never married, rarely left the house, was very shy and retiring. Um, and was the oldest. And was the oldest girl. Right. Yeah. But... I thought that that was such an interesting way to look at this kind of a story and to to put together the pieces of how a family is made up and how character is shaped both in fiction and nonfiction, like and in real life, by the people who are around us and their thoughts and their feelings and their ideas and the way you kind of you're shoved into this this home with people that you didn't necessarily you didn't at all ask to be born with or around and and all of these personalities packed together, shaken up, and then you kind of just see what comes out of that. It was really interesting. The other really cool thing about the structure of this book is that it is punctuated by um, pieces of, like, real newspapers sometimes about Lincoln, sometimes from his own writing, um, but historical artifacts mostly um, about Lincoln's life, quite often that parallel things that are going on with the Booths. And I just found that totally fascinating. Yeah, really, really self-made man versus self-made men, um, which is funny because again they come from this acting family, but each of them had has to forge to, his own way. Yeah, and, it's your own thing. It really is. And just, I was struck so much by the way that there is always so much more that is similar about us as human beings than what's different about us. But when we look at each other, often what we see are the differences. We don't notice those similarities. Karen Joy Fowler did a really, really cool job bringing up the similarities in humanity and also really bringing out the ways that we reinvent our history. We misremember. We can't put it together correctly, all the things that have happened in our past, because Mm -hmm. we see it through the film of nostalgia or our own self-righteousness or the way we wish it would have been. And being able to say that for these characters in the story, knowing what's coming at the end for one of them was really fascinating. But, of course, Fowler herself explains in the end, she was curious about this book. She didn't want to make this some sort of memorial to John Wilkes Booth. No, she really didn't even want to write about him, which is yeah. why she framed it with the siblings, and honestly, all the siblings got more time than John. Yeah, yeah. But at the end, it becomes, in theme anyway, if not in scope, a book about radicalism, a book about how even within a household of people who've known each other so intimately, one can get bent and turned and twisted and pulled in a way to render you almost unrecognizable even to the people who know you best. And while there were certainly hints in the making of John's character, there was nothing really that led anybody to believe that this could happen. And the book felt like it wasn't that it wasn't that Karen Joy Fowler just didn't have enough information. It's just 
that's that's true of most of us, you know? Oh, sure. While, it, while it's definitely true that for many of us, what we notice and remember about other people are the differences, when we look at our families, so often what we see are ourselves in them. And so it's hard to see the truth as well. Yeah, absolutely. And just, there were so many times when the historical record resonates so strongly with the questions that were asked today. I was particularly struck late in the book. We're probably up to about 1865 at this point no in the spoilers, book. No spoilers, right? No. Okay. And, and the mother writes John Wilkes Booth a letter. And in the letter she writes, I am no Roman mother. I love my dear ones before country or anything else. And, you know, those, those ties that have to bind us more deeply than political ideology, more deeply than nationhood even, are really at the root of this book and how, how we keep that faith uh, in a complicated world, in a complicated family. Uh, just this, this book for me was just a masterful insight into the human condition in 1865 and 2022, probably in 2222, if there's still a world and people to read it. Um, if you have read Booth, let us know what you think about it. Um, we'd love to hear your thoughts. And if this book sounds interesting to you, you might be interested in Karen Joy Fowler's other books. Um, her writing is gorgeous, and the like the style of her writing is the same in all of them. The first one of hers I read was the Jane Austen Book Club, and then the more recent one is We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves. Any of those are wonderful. So um, let us know what you think about any of that. Let us know what you have been reading and what you think we ought to read next. The book that we're going to be talking about in two weeks is The 90s by Chuck Klosterman, which I referenced today and Joe talked about a little bit more two weeks ago. We're going to dig into that in a lot more depth um, in two weeks when we talk to you again. I'm going to probably try to find one of his novels. I don't know if you realize that about him. He's written a couple of novels in addition to all these collections of essays. And You're the I fan have... of his. Like, this is literally the first thing of his I've read. Yeah, yeah, and four or five for me. But I want to check out these novels. I want to see how that works because I've known him in this little box as an essayist. But okay. we shall see. In the meanwhile, um, hope everybody's doing well. Read good books. And even if not, uh, keep reading anyway.